where we discuss current issues in women's health. This month on COG, we'll be talking contraception. First up, we'll chat with Dr. Katrina Melville, an ONG specialising in sexual health. Then I'll chat with Dr. Anders Faber-Svensson, our resident grumpy gynaecologist, about salpingectomy versus bilateral tubal ligation for surgical contraception. Then, as always, we'll finish up with Journal Club, where Ted and I discuss four recent articles from the medical literature regarding contraception. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist working on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ted Weaver. Hello, and like Rachel, I'm excited that we're talking today about contraception, which is an important topic, and certainly it's a subject where the focus has changed over the years from really a predominant use of combined oral contraceptive pills as a preferred method of contraception for women. And I think this has been supplanted in in the last few years by the increasing use of long-acting reversible contraceptives. And I think this is the message from today's podcast is that larks, as they're so-called, certainly are probably now the method of choice because of their reliability. And it's really the set-and-forget sort of contraception that I think is preferred by numbers of women. Yeah, they're certainly the contraceptive of choice for women, most importantly. There's a number of studies that we've looked at in preparation uh, for this week's Journal Club that suggests women, when given the choice and uh, ease of access to any contraceptive method, they prefer larks overwhelmingly. And I think they're probably also the method of choice for most care providers, firstly because the women like it, but secondly because they're so reliable and, and we can really say with confidence to women when we're recommending a lark that they won't fall pregnant when they're using it. Yeah, and I think that's been further helped by the reanalysis of of the IUD data from the 70s and 80s where it was suggested that IUDs were strongly associated with development of pelvic infection and the idea of putting an IUD in a in a nulliparous woman and and particularly a teenage nulliparous woman was was almost heresy back then. And I think those ideas have undergone considerable revision and I think we now have excellent data to attest to the safety of these methods in, in um, diverse groups of women, uh, often without any association with PID or other sorts of pelvic infection, which seems to be related much more to people's sexual practice than, than the use of the, than a particular type of contraceptive. So first up, Ted, you'll be talking to Dr. Katrina Melville. Katrina is a UK trained, she's Scottish and went through the RCOG training program in the UK and has done the RCOG module on sexual health. So she works for True in Queensland, which is um, used to be called the Family Planning Association of Queensland, but has morphed into True, which has other... It still has a, a very strong focus on contraception and women's health, but is also an increasing focus on women's sexual health. So we'll be talking to her about a, a range of matters regarding current contraceptive trends and potential concerns uh, and benefits with different sorts of contraception. So let's get to it. Here's Ted chatting with Dr. Katrina Melville. Welcome to COG. Today we're talking to Katrina Melville, who's an expert in sexual and reproductive health, who works for True in Queensland. So welcome, Katrina. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me. So Katrina, Australia has a reasonably high rate of teenage pregnancy and Australian Bureau of Statistics data would suggest that health literacy of women aged 15 to 25 is low for reproductive health. So do you think the relatively high teenage pregnancy rate is related to low health literacy about effective contraception? And how could we improve that? 
Um, I think there definitely is an association there with um, poor health literacy. Um, and I think um, what's been shown is that you really have to start your education into um, sexual reproductive health at quite an early age. Um, some of the countries in Europe have done that incredibly well. Um, I think one of the barriers here is potentially some of the denominational schools and we don't have control over their curriculums and learning. Um, but really normalising reproductive health at quite a young age and giving um, men and women the knowledge to equip them with um, definitely um, delays in first sexual intercourse and also um, teenage pregnancy. And what do you think about the True All School program, which is rated on the True website as Australia's leading relationships and sexuality education program? Um, Yeah, it is rated very highly. I um, don't actually, I'm not involved in delivering the program, but certainly I think any program which um, enables schools to deliver an accredited sexual reproductive health program is just an absolute bonus Mm -hmm. um, for educating our young people. Larks have been incredibly successful, that's long-acting reversible contraceptives, as contraceptives. A lot of women don't embrace them because they read a lot about the bad side effects associated with them. And how do you counter that? And how would you direct women to reliable sources of information? Yeah, that is very difficult. And there has been some very negative media, both in Australia and in other countries, concerning the LARC methods. Um, It just takes a lot of education and re-educating women um, and giving them the the solid evidence-based information in a format that they can understand. There's often cultural barriers to LARC as well. Um, But I do find that when you look at the effectiveness of methods and you show women a comparison between the efficacy of LARC methods and other methods of contraception, that ultimately they do grasp um, and understand quite well that um, if they want to prevent pregnancy, that these are the methods they should be using. Um, And I do definitely point them to reliable methods of um, sources of information on the internet because there are so many unreliable ones. So looking at in any of the states in Australia, the family planning based websites are really good for solid evidence based information. One of the problems, of course, with LARC is the sometimes erratic bleeding that accompanies the use of those products. Do you have any magic tricks that you can tell our listeners about um, how to counter that? Um, I don't have any any magic tricks. I mean, I, I think um, obviously some LARC methods are associated with more troublesome bleeding than others, um, particularly the Implanon. Um, and in that case, we do tend to use a low dose or a 30 microgram combined hormonal contraception for three months and counter it. I think it's also really important in any woman that has troublesome bleeding with LARC methods or any method of contraception to think about other possible causes like STIs and check that their cervical screening is up to date. Um, there isn't really any magic um, solution, but I do think um, just to confirm that the bleeding is down to the LARC method um, and also to see the duration that they've used the method, because quite often problematic bleeding can settle down um, within the first few months of usage, particularly for the um, Depo-Provera and also for the um, Levonorgestrel IUS. Um, the Implanon, unfortunately, the bleeding pattern they start with does tend to continue. So, um, as I say, using a, a combined pill, maybe for a few months, even just to give them a break from the bleeding, and it sometimes will settle down. But otherwise, there's there's no magic cure, I'm afraid. No, it's a difficulty, isn't it? One of the problems that can occur in Australia is that numbers of products aren't necessarily available over the counter. So do you think that certain products should be available over the counter, as we have with post, um, with rather emergency contraception? You know, the, should the combined OCP, for instance, be available as an over-the-counter 
So I think we need to look at barriers to access and um, certainly appointments and cost are our big issues in Australia. Um, I think it would be a good thing to explore having pharmacists um, making more contraceptive methods available. But you have to um, have the caveat that clearly even things like the combined pill, which people think is an everyday medicine, can have very serious consequences. One of the problems with contraception is that it seems a bit one-sided in that the burden often seems to fall on women. So what do you think is on the horizon for male contraception? I know that we've seen examples of reversible vasectomies where plastic pellets are put into the vas deferens to occlude it, to give men a temporary contraception rather than, than a permanent vasectomy. I know we've, we've looked at various immunological trials, which unfortunately have had the effect of often interfering with a man's potency. So... Do you think that there's anything coming up or is it going to be more or less business as usual? They are actually involved in human trials with this. So there is a possibility that um, that will come into play. And it would be nice to see more male options. Um, you know, women often um, feel that they're having to take the brunt of responsibility. But equally, a lot of men would like to take more contraceptive responsibility. But essentially, they have two options, uh, barrier methods and, and sterilisation. So there are not many, many options open to men. So that would be wonderful if um, some of those reversible uh, options became came into place. What do you think the ideal contraception for women would look like? As far as women go, there, there's been a lot of development with um, different types of pills and extended regimes for pills. And that's looking um, really promising in that we do know that there is no necessity to have a monthly bleed and that sometimes having a longer regime is better for women who have um, gynecological problems and also problems during the withdrawal um, bleed in terms of having side effects and headaches. Um, and otherwise, um, no, I, I, I'm not sure what the, the miracle contraceptive will be, but it'd be wonderful if we could have one that was 100% effective and had no side effects. And so what, what would be your, if, if you were talking to a group of doctors or health professionals about contraception, what would be your main take-home message, if you could just distill it down to one thing that you wanted them to get out of a talk? Yeah. So um, I would say don't delay starting contraception. Make sure you think about quick starting contraception because delaying contraception just produces barriers um, for women and also increases the risk of pregnancy. And I would also, the take-home message would be that LARC methods are the most efficacious methods. They are reversible and they are actually very cost-effective if you use them for more than a year. Um, and they have been shown to reduce unintended pregnancy. So my take-home message would really be um, LARC and also start contraception if possible when a patient presents and don't defer that to another visit. Yes, I, I think I would agree with that. And the other thing that I, that I thought is, is interesting to me as a practitioner working in this area is that Australia doesn't have any um, guidelines similar to the UK uh, medical eligibility criteria or the UK MEC, which is really a guide for those listeners who don't know to the safety of, of, of various sorts of contraceptives and what uh, it's a sort of a list, if you like, of, of contraindications. Do you think that it, that it's essential that Australia develop its own or, or are we safe to continue to use the UK MEC um, criteria? 
So the UK MEC were based heavily on the WHO MEC, which was the first medical eligibility criteria document. But WHO MEC was really for resource poor settings. So UK MEC and also US MEC are for um, developed countries. But although it's not um, necessary, I think it would be wonderful if we developed an Australian MEC because we do have slightly different health systems. We do have, um, you know, a different population and perhaps different uh, vulnerable groups of patients as well. So I just think it would be ideal if we had a version of the medical eligibility criteria that was for um, Australian people. Yeah, well, there you go. So some of you listeners out there, there's a day job staring you in the face. So thank you very much, Katrina, and thank you for contributing to Com. Thank you. That was Ted talking to Dr. Katrina Melville from True in Queensland. Next up, I'll chat with Dr. Anders Faber-Svensson, the grumpy gynecologist, about surgical sterilisation procedures and ovarian cancer risk. Thanks for joining us, Anders. Thanks for having me. Anders is here to talk about prophylactic bilateral self-injectomy, both in hysterectomy for benign disease, but largely as a contraceptive measure. So, what do you think, Anders? Well, I think it's an area where, as a group, we've been very quick at adopting a new um, new way of dealing with a, with an old problem. Uh, it's certainly positive that we've found a potential way of preventing ovarian cancer and I think we're all get coming to terms with um, ovarian cancer screening not working despite how we wanted to um, and even coming to terms with pelvic ultrasound scans in, in women for ovarian cancer screening causing harm both psychologically and physically with unnecessary surgery. So any development that might reduce the um, incidence of ovarian cancer should be welcomed. It's interesting that definitive proof is still decades in the making for salpingectomy to be proven to absolutely reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Well, the biggest population-based study to date from Sweden does give a compelling case for adnexal surgery reducing the risk of ovarian cancer. Interestingly, the risk reduction from a bilateral tubal ligation is very similar to a to a bilateral salpingectomy. The other interesting thing to note about the numbers in this study is that very few of the over 200,000 women had had bilateral salpingectomy. And if you think about the indications for bilateral salpingectomy before the um, urge to prevent ovarian cancer was, was there, very few women would have had bilateral salpingectomies. And I think it's relevant to ask if these women are representative of the overall risk of ovarian cancer. So indications like ectopic pregnancy, hydrosalpinks in women undergoing fertility procedures would probably be the main indications for salpingectomy previously? Yeah, you'd assume so, although those details aren't given in 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 the data. I think in general gynecological practice, if the tubes are easy to get to and, and easy to remove, it's reasonable to do that. The thing that worries me is that we might be doing salpingectomies at all cost. I can picture some colleagues choosing to do a certain route of hysterectomy, arguing that it's easier to remove the tubes at, say, a laparoscopic hysterectomy when we know that a vaginal, the vaginal approach is uh, better for the patient from an operative risk point of view. It's interesting too to note that a hysterectomy involves tubal ligation, no matter how you do it, and will reduce a woman's risk of ovarian cancer. The other concern I have is bilateral salpingectomies for sterilisation at caesarean section 
where I think we would all agree that the risk of complications with doing a salpingectomy in a gravid uterus is much higher than doing a salpingectomy. Although it's interesting a, that you say that because there's not actually any data to support that assertion. Well, there is one small study with about 40 patients showing no difference, but I take that with a pinch of salt. Uh, I think we're allowed to use common sense in surgery and uh, the vascular supply of, of the um, adnexa in gravid uterus would make it obvious to me that if you do hundreds and thousands of salpingectomies, you will end up with more complications. It may well be that that increased risk of complication is worth it when we have further data, but I think at the moment we should be very cautious with how we treat these women. So the Swedish study you quoted uh, was included in a meta-analysis looking at ovarian cancer risk. These were all retrospective population-based studies, and the meta-analysis showed a 49% risk reduction for women undergoing salpingectomy a 38% risk reduction for women undergoing hysterectomy alone and a 26 to 34% risk reduction for women undergoing a tubal occlusion procedure. Um, so again, while not prospective data, there is a strong suggestion that hysterectomy alone reduces ovarian cancer risk, as does tubal occlusion, as in modified pomeroys or use of filtry clips. But it seems that bilateral salpingectomy confers the biggest risk reduction for those women. Although in the uh, biggest study, the, the Swedish study, the difference in risk was much less. Uh, in the Swedish study, there was no statistically significant difference in the risk reduction in, uh, in tubal occlusion versus salpingectomy. What's your thoughts about salpingectomy at the time of caesarean section? Would you do it or do you think we're better off just doing our regular tubal ligation methods? My view would be that in the interest of uh, safety with the lack of further evidence that we should just be doing tubal occlusion procedures. I know that's probably controversial with some of my colleagues. The other approach would be to do a tubal ligation if it appears to be an easy operation uh, and do a tubal occlusion procedure if there are big vessels making salpingectomy very difficult. Yeah, so stratifying that risk of of operative complication according to what you get Mm. when you get into the abdomen. Because some tubes will just be floating around freely. You've got easy access to the fimbria. Those, there's a nice space in the broad ligament to make your window. Um, and some tubes will be stuck down, difficult to mobilize. And I agree. I don't think those ones are worth going after in the case of the Caesar. So we might just mention a little bit of data with multiple retrospective studies looking at operative risk when salpingectomy is done with hysterectomy for benign disease and Ultimately, these papers showed no difference in blood loss, no difference in readmission rates. Interestingly, a longer hospital stay for women who did not undergo a bilateral salpingectomy, but that may reflect the nature of their procedure, that the tubes may have been more difficult to access or adhesions or bad endometriosis. So on balance, the ACOG has put out a consensus statement on this. There's an excellent uh, article out of the AJOG uh, that summarises all these issues that I'll put a link to on the website. Do you have any closing remarks, Dr. Faber-Svensson? I think it is directed me for, for benign disease, if particularly if the approach allows it. A salpingectomy is a, is a no-brainer at the moment. I do worry that at a vaginal hysterectomy, access to the tubes is often much more difficult. And I don't think the urge to do a salpingectomy should stop us from still performing vaginal hysterectomies on the women that are suitable to have that operation. So it's important to note that although this has been widely adopted as a preventative strategy for ovarian cancer, 
that at this time causality has not been established uh, and the prospective data is decades in the making. There's some interesting trials underway, the SCORE trial out of the US, a subinjectomy at caesarean delivery for ovarian cancer reduction trial, as well as a number of other prospective trials looking at ovarian function and ovarian cancer rates in women who've undergone salpingectomy. The really interesting thing is we don't even know how well it works. We don't even know why it works. That's the other problem with tubal occlusion procedures giving almost the same cancer ovarian cancer risk reduction as a salpingectomy. The theory behind the link between fallopian tube and ovarian cancer doesn't seem to quite work when uh, the tubal epithelium is still left behind um, and the ovarian cancer risk is still reduced. Thanks for joining us on COG. Thanks for having me. Next up, Journal Club with Ted. And this month we're discussing four articles. And the first one that we will talk about is... um, this one's entitled Lifetime Cancer Risk and Combined Oral Contraceptives, the Royal College of General Practitioners Oral Contraception Study. And this was published in the American Journal of ONG in June last year. And one of the benefits of oral contraception has been known for some time is that if women do use it for a long time, it can mitigate the risks of various cancers, particularly endometrial cancer and also ovarian cancer. And so it's timely to review this study. I think we shouldn't forget the benefits that can accrue to women with the use of combined OCPs. It's particularly topical at the moment. The New England Journal of Medicine just published a paper regarding a slight increase in breast cancer risk for women using the oral contraceptive pill. So I think it's really worthwhile looking at what the overall cancer risk is for women in a lifetime. And so with the the Royal College of General Practitioners study, What it was, was that it looked at over 46,000 women who were recruited to the UK Royal College of General Practitioners Oral Contraceptive Study in 1968 and 69, and these women were subsequently followed up for up to 44 years. Directly standardised rates of specific and any cancer were calculated for ever and never uses of combined OCPs, and the data were then standardised for age, parity, social class and smoking. And what they found was that there were 4,661 ever users with at least one cancer during over 880,000 women years of observation and 2,341 never users with at least one cancer during 388,000 women years of observation. And ever use of oral contraceptives was associated with a reduced incidence of colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, and ovarian cancer, and lymphatic and hemopoietic cancers. And an increased risk of lung cancer was seen only among ever users who smoked at recruitment. They concluded, based on these data, that most women who choose to use um, oral contraceptives do not expose themselves to long-term cancer harms. Instead, with some cancers, many women benefit from important reductions of risk that persist for many years after stopping. Uh, an increased risk of lung cancer was seen only among ever users who smoked at recruitment. An increased risk of breast and cervical cancer that was seen in current and recent users appeared to be lost within approximately five years of stopping uh, combined oral contraception, with no evidence of either cancer recurring at an increased risk in ever users with time. And so they concluded, based on these data, 
that most women who choose to use oral contraceptives do not expose themselves to long-term cancer harms. And instead, with some cancers, many women benefit from important reductions of risk that persist for many years after stopping. Which I think is important news for women, particularly with a cancer like ovarian cancer, which is so hard to, to detect in its early stages. Yeah, what was interesting was the temporal relationship they explored between cessation of the oral contraceptive pill and uh, the persistent cancer risk. So it appears that those risks of breast and cervical cancer resolve over the first five years. So uh, after five years of cessation of use, you're back to your baseline risk, whereas the protective effects against colorectal cancer, uh, endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer persist for more than 35 years. What I found very entertaining about reading this study, it was the longest-running study of the health effects of oral contraception in the world. When, When you looked at the results, the group that they collected information on was largely white, married or cohabiting, as you would be in the late 1960s when you're taking the oral contraceptive pill. Uh, The mean age at recruitment was 29, and the study was established before ethics committees were introduced in the UK. When they controlled for confounders, they talked about uh, smoking habits, social class, parity, significant medical history. But social class was based on your partner's occupation, which reflected the society of the day where you were tied to your man and whatever he had was what mm. you had access to. Yeah, so it's interesting to see big data reaching across the decades. Um, and, and it would be interesting to look at this group, um, look, look at another prospe- prospective group, for the next 40 years to see what the incidence of something like cervical cancer might be, where we'd expect with a vaccinated cohort of women moving forward, that that risk should be much mitigated. Mm. Well, that's how the authors justified their sort of conclusion at the end of the study, that it's protective against uh, cancers, when actually what they showed was a neutral risk balance across what they had. But they've hypothesised that now with uh, the cervical cancer vaccine, with the Gardasil vaccine and Gardasil 9, we're going to see a reduction in cervical cancer. uh, So the balance will be in favour of the protective effect of the oral contraceptive pill. There are a number of methodological flaws with this study. There was minimal controlling for confounding. We talked about uh, the groups that they controlled for, um, but they didn't address issues like HRT, smoking cessation, BMI, alcohol, diet, family history, all other important things in terms of cancer risk. They made a number of assumptions in trying to tweak the data and there was a large loss to follow up. But the authors did look at that and suggest there was no systematic bias in the loss to follow up of patients. Um, So overall, this is an interesting read, particularly uh, with respect to uh, its historical context and also the overall finding that there's a neutral cancer risk in women taking the oral contraceptive pill. I agree, but even allowing for the flaws in the study, it it is a big study, and 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 generally, I think that if you've got such large numbers, and it's it's a reasonable summary of what actually happened. But given the large numbers, you'd think that it represents something that's real. And stuff that they found in this has also been confirmed in other yeah, studies. Yeah, it supports other uh, yeah. data and other so, studies that are possibly better so, constructed. Yeah. This is a large prospective study looking at lifetime use of oral contraception and cancer risk. The oral contraceptive pill appears to have a neutral lifetime cancer risk. Its use increases rates of breast cancer and cervical cancer and lung cancer in women who smoke during commencement of the OCP. 
Everuse is associated with a reduced risk of colorectal, ovarian and endometrial cancer. This risk reduction persists long-term after cessation of the oral contraceptive pill. Overall, lifetime cancer risk is neutral. The next article for review in Journal Club is entitled The Zika Contraception Access Network, a feasibility program to increase access to contraception in Puerto Rico during the 2016-17 Zika virus outbreak. It's by Eva Lathrop and co-authors and was published in The Lancet in February of 2017. I really liked this article and I liked it because it really nicely delineates a public health emergency, which was the outbreak of the Zika virus, which had an on-flow effect to pregnant women and their their children, you know, and the population uh, that followed. And I liked it because it documents a rapid response to that problem with a public health initiative. So it was a public health initiative that occurred in uh, Puerto Rico, an area where the use of larks accounted for less than 1% of the contraceptive methods prior to this program. The program involved a network of partners, uh, federal agencies, territorial health agencies, private corporations, domestic philanthropic and non-profit organisations in the USA and Puerto Rico. Uh, And it had a three-pronged attack. So the first prong was making LARCs available and accessible and free to women um, and trying to remove the barriers associated with access to contraception. And that was done by garnering some funding and, and grants to provide the devices and the training. The second aspect was a training module delivered to healthcare providers in Puerto Rico. Some of these were primary health physicians, some were obstetricians, gynecologists, nurses. Uh, and it was a one-day training course where they did an overview of Zika, the sexual nature of transmission, the importance of condom use, counselling around contraception, review of guidelines and evidence, and then a simulation of how to insert an IUD or an etnogestural implant and an overview of policies and procedures. And then the third aspect was a promotional package which made women aware of the ZCAN project through community engagement activities, uh, website, posters in health centres, Facebook, of course. So all women of reproductive age were eligible to receive ZCAN services, irrespective of their age or insurance status. It was a big program that was designed to enable women to have access to contraception. Overall, it found that at first visit, 68% of women chose to receive a LARC, 25% chose the oral contraceptive pill or hormonal contraception. The remaining 5% of women were undecided or unprepared to receive contraception at that visit. And then the breakdown of women using LARC was 50% opted for an IUD, 35% received an etnogestral releasing implant, and 14% receiving a copper IUD. Women were overall satisfied. They did some survey work. Women were satisfied with the project, were satisfied with their experience, and over 90% of women received adequate contraception at their first presentation. So I think it's interesting that, that, that in a country like Puerto Rico with perhaps uh, reasonably poor health infrastructure that such a project can be mounted perhaps begs the question, you know, why hasn't it been done before, recognising that um, women in lower socioeconomic classes are more likely to have more babies, they're more likely to have them younger. There are all the problems associated with reproducing in a not quite a third world country but close to it's interesting that there are resources available to mount such a response. It's a pity that uh, perhaps you know Donald Trump didn't use so similar diligence in responding to their social needs after the hurricane that devastated the island late last year. It's interesting how these things go. 
it shows what you can do when you remove barriers to contraception. Mm. And this is a poor nation with poor access and a historical lack of access. But I think we don't have to look too far in Australia and in Queensland to know that there's barriers. And if you make contraception free, easily accessible, people know if they turn up and ask for it, they'll be able to have it administered. I think it just speaks volumes to what you can do. This paper looks at the rollout of contraception services as a short-term emergency response to the Zika outbreak in Puerto Rico in 2016-17. The program provided access to contraception services for over 21,000 women. 95% of women received same-day provision of a reversible contraceptive method. 68% of women chose to receive a LARC method at their initial visit. Removing barriers of cost and accessibility improves contraceptive uptake in low-resource communities. So the next article in Journal Club is entitled Immediate Postpartum Intrauterine Device and Implant Program Outcomes, a Prospective Analysis. This is by Jennifer Egger-Broughton and co-authors, published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in July of 2017. So this was a prospective observational study from Utah where they looked at women who requested intrauterine device or implant for postpartum contraception antenatally. Immediate postpartum contraception is really important because it addresses a bunch of issues. It addresses the neonatal morbidity associated with a short interpregnancy interval. It addresses the number of barriers that women experience in accessing contraception, which we've just talked about. And it ensures that women have reliable and safe contraception for the early postpartum phase. So in this study, they prospectively collected data for women who had a postpartum device placed with the intention to compare outcomes between the implant the levonorgestrel IUD and the copper IUD. Women were followed up up to six months with a phone call and asked some survey questions. So 350 women were involved, 289 completed follow-ups, so that's a loss to follow-up of about 11%. The population was predominantly Hispanic, multiparous, and with a household income of less than $24,000 because the way they funded the devices in this project was through a grant and so there were very tight criteria around who had access to the devices and so you've got a specific population group which the study ended up looking at. Uh, Overall they found that the levonorgestrel device was expelled more frequently than the copper IUD with 17% of LNG devices being expelled and only 4% of copper IUD uh, devices being expelled which was significant. So that's an interesting area for further research. Only 8% of users had their device electively removed in the six months of follow-up, and it was more common for copper IUD users. So I think it's important to know that if we can put these devices in immediately postpartum, it seems that women will elect to keep them if they don't fall out. So for device retention at six months, 80% of LNG IUDs were retained, 83% of copper IUDs were remained, and 90% of implant users retained their device. Retention wasn't significantly affected by the device type. And interestingly, one of the questions they asked at the six-month survey was, have you had a postpartum check in the six months since you had your baby? And for 25% of women, the answer was no. So that just demonstrates, you know, why it's such an opportunity to put these devices in immediately postpartum because Mm. a quarter of women aren't coming back. At least a quarter, I'm coming back to get one put in at six weeks. 
No, I agree, and I think I think the evidence is clearly there to attest to the safety of, of this approach, whether you insert it postpartum or even at the time of cesarean section. I mean, occasionally you'll have to see women who've got an intrauterine device inside you where you've got to trim the strings because of the lengthening of the strings that inevitably occurs as the postpartum uterus involutes. I agree that certainly for women who may be recalcitrant in attending follow-up or can't attend for whatever reason, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity to do it. And, and um, as you rightly say, Rachel, I think it, it is important that we do something to mitigate the short into pregnancy intervals that seem to be associated with worse perinatal outcomes. But I think it seems to be very acceptable to women, certainly since I know we started doing it in our clinic, the, the response from women has been very positive that that is something that they would like to get sorted whilst they're still in hospital um, having their baby. One of the potential problems might be the short length of stay that women have after having their baby, but it's important to point out that these things can be put in you know, within hours of birth. And so you don't need to wait for assuming that you have no other concerns about postpartum bleeding. You don't have to wait prior to insertion of, say, an intrauterine device. So that was one of the issues. They didn't define uh, the timing between delivery of the placenta uh, and the insertion of the device. Uh, as I said, there's issues with generalizability because of the patient uh, group. There might be bias in that group. Um, they use self-report for uh, expulsion and tried to verify with chart reviews, which have its own issues. Um, but overall, I think it's a really nice designed prospective study that uh, shows that it's safe to put these devices in. Women will keep them if they get them and raises some interesting questions about whether a progesterone, uh, an LNG device, is more likely to be rejected by the uterus than a copper IUD. Indeed. This prospective observational study examines women using long-acting reversible contraception immediately postpartum. Retention rates were greater than 80% at six months postpartum for women who elected immediate postpartum LARC use. Increased rates of expulsion of LNG IUD versus copper IUD warrants further investigation. And the final study is entitled Association of Hormonal Contraception with Depression in the Postpartum Period. And this was a study that was published in contraception in August 2017. And it's a study that comes out of Houston, and the the main author is Timothy Roberts. And what they were looking at was that various studies have demonstrated an association between hormonal contraception use and subsequent depression and antidepressant use. And this association has not really been assessed among postpartum women. And so the study was a secondary analysis of insurance records from about 75,500 postpartum women who were enrolled in the U.S. military medical system who had their babies between October 2012 and September 2014. And their study specifically excluded women who had previously used antidepressants or had a diagnosis of depression in the 24 months prior to delivery. What they did was they assessed the relationship of hormonal contraception use with subsequent antidepressant use or diagnosis of depression in the first 12 months postpartum using Cox proportional hazards regression with a time-dependent covariate measuring exposure to hormonal (laughs) contraception. Can you tell me more about that? That's right. I have no idea. So what they found 
was that antidepressants were prescribed to 7.8% of women and 5% were diagnosed with depression. It's interesting that there was a variation between those two groups. Using a multivariate analysis that adjusted for demographics, both antidepressant use and diagnosis with depression were associated with various factors, including younger age, lower socioeconomic status, and a history of military service. Compared to women with no hormonal contraceptive use, use of etonorgestrel-containing contraception was associated with a higher risk of antidepressant use and use of a levonorgestrel intrauterine system was associated with a lower risk of depression. And so what they concluded based on this was the risk of major depression diagnosis and antidepressant use in the postpartum period varies with the type of hormonal contraception used and said that further research was needed to describe the mechanisms of these relationships. And I think this is important because certainly in various Australian studies, the incidence of postnatal depression is somewhere around about 10%, so fairly similar to what was described in in this study. Well, in this paper, they excluded anyone with a past history of depression in the two years prior. Yeah, so that's why it's it's low. That's why it's lower, yeah. And also, in in an Australian setting, around about half of women who have a diagnosis of postnatal depression might be treated subsequently with antidepressant medication. And so, is there an association between depression and various contraceptive methods used? It would seem that there is, but it's it's a relationship that is um, complex and I think that it needs further research. What do you think, Rachel? I was pretty underwhelmed with this paper. They've used some... uh, It's really interesting, the databases, and this isn't the only one I've read uh, this month, using the military database and accessing people's records um, and their pharmacy prescriptions to try and make some associations. Um, and they interestingly, in the military, they use your rank or your supporting whoever's got the health insurance, that person's rank as the proxy for socioeconomic status. So um, I think, look, I think it suggests there might be some associations. It, it was cons- The findings were consistent in that they showed that the norethindrone-only pills uh, had a lower hazard of antidepressant use and encounters for depression, uh, and the levonorgestrel IUD had a lower hazard of encounters for depression. So those findings are somewhat consistent. But the follow-up period was an average of 8.9 months, so it was very short. The norethindrone-only pill had an even shorter outcome. It was a matter of a couple of months before women changed over. I think, uh, you know, it's an interesting look at a database and playing with some numbers, but it just, like most research, it just raises more questions than answers. Yeah, I think the striking thing for me was that, was that the rate of depression postpartum was so low in the, it was higher, but still fairly low for women who experienced frontline military service. You would think that it would be higher than that, just given that the, the effects that that you know, seems to have on, on people's lives. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting points of this paper is that women who, uh, because it looks at all women supported by the military insurance, Frontline service was an independent risk factor for a mm. depressive episode and use Correct. of antidepressants. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, but but even so, it still wasn't. It was higher, but it still wasn't too much higher than women that had not had frontline military what service. Was it? Increased by about two percent higher. Yeah. So it's only a little bit higher. Intuitively, you'd think that it would be much higher, but mm. it wasn't. Interesting. 
we're really talking about contraception in a positive light and talking about the empowerment that it gives to women to make decisions around their own fertility. But I think this was a good article, Ted, because it reminds us that there are complications associated Hmm. with the use of all different sorts of contraception. And as always, it's a a patient-by-patient basis to address the concerns that they might have about their method of choice. Mm, That's right. Very much an individual decision. This is a retrospective audit of a large military database looking at postpartum depression and contraceptive choice in women without a recent history of depressive illness. Diagnosis of depression and antidepressant use were associated with a younger age, lower socioeconomic status, and a history of active military service. This work shows increased risk of antidepressant use in women using atonogestrel-containing contraception, such as the implant and ring. Lower risk of depression was seen in women using the norethindrone-only pill or the LNG IUD. Further work is required to assess the relationship between postpartum contraception and postpartum depression. That's it for COG this month. Remember, if you'd like to get in touch with me to give us any feedback about the program, you can contact us via the website, cog.podbean.com. There's a Facebook page, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology, or you can get me on the email, cogconversation at gmail.com. Next month, we'll be talking to Glenn Gardner, a maternal medicine specialist from the Mater Mothers Hospital in Brisbane about ultrasound and growth parameters. And I think it's timely to have this sort of discussion just because of the difficulty that we have in deciding about babies that are suffering issues on growth restriction, babies that are small for gestational age, looking at the current controversy around customised birth charts and the intergrow consortium out of Oxford, how do we reconcile those two positions? And I think it's timely to have this discussion. So thanks for joining us on COP. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining. Bye.